No, I didn't actually attempt. Um, I haven't gotten to that point, I guess. The courage, the strength that it takes to be open and honest about this. Instead of just, you know, blaming myself that he's not here anymore. Uh, I was prepared to shoot myself. Um, and I called my family to sort of say goodbye. To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. Hello everyone, I am Tim Lawson host and founder of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Project. This week, I have Marine veteran Antonio Santano, who bravely comes forward and tells us the story of a fellow officer that took his own life and then briefly tells us about the circumstance in which his own sister took her own life. Both both stories are very powerful, and they're unique to the project in the sense that this is the first uh, this is the first account that we've gotten from a veteran regarding a family member uh, outside the service. And I think it's important within veteran suicide, within this epidemic, to not only recognize those that in the service that are struggling with this, but also those in a service that are impacted by this and how uh, how suicide in general impacts you know their lives. And before we get to the interview... I would like to give an honorable mention to Frank Gustafson and One Bold Move as they've generously come forward and sponsored and supported this particular episode. It's very fitting in a lot of Frank's work is with leadership and life coaching. We met because we're veterans. We had that common ground. Frank's family has been faced with suicide before, and so he was really passionate about being able to support this project. So, uh, Frank, one bold move. Thank you so much for your support, for your generosity. If anybody's interested in Frank's work as a life coach, oneboldmove.com is where you can get more information on him and his work. Antonio's probably the most recognizable guest that we've had on the show regarding how many times he is presenting himself to the public. He does many podcast appearances to talk about his time in the military, to talk about his businesses, etc. So I think that it's really important to recognize that Antonio's helping us break down the stigmas and breaking down the walls that we build up around veteran suicide and the the liabilities and vulnerabilities that we are setting for ourselves by talking about this, he is stripping all of that away by not only coming forward and sharing these stories, but bravely putting his name on it as, as well, letting everybody know, yes, this is me and these are my stories. So sit back, listen to my interview with Antonio. I know you're going to take something from it. I'll have more to say in the reflections. I, I think uh, the first one I'll talk about, I'll talk about Chris, uh, Chris Shea. Okay. And he was a uh, he was a second lieutenant in the uh, United States Marine Corps. We served together when we were with Third Battalion First Marines, and uh, and he died on November seventeenth, two thousand two. Uh, we were deployed, and we were on uh, we were with Marine Expeditionary Force. Uh, 
basically we were going to the Middle East, the Asia Pacific. And, uh, Chris, you know what, I think what struck me about this one is just, I saw no signs. Um, I mean, he was just, he was one of the happier officers that I knew, always had a smile. He had a New England accent, uh, at least to me, you know, growing up in Texas. Um, he just, Seemed like a great guy. I always, I remember him. I always thought he would make a. He seemed like he had like a great little wrestler body in the sense of when I remember like his physical. And I went to college in Iowa, so I remember thinking, man, this guy like he's got like a low center of gravity. He's got you know these arms that kind of stay high. He just he was a fun guy. He was uh, you know I do remember he he was he was shorter than me by a couple inches and uh, just just a happy person. I hung out with him when we were last time I saw him. Uh, Honestly, alive. Uh, I believe we were in Singapore. We were, or we were we were hanging out in Singapore. Uh, all of the uh, at the time, I was a uh, I was a first lieutenant, and all the lieutenants were. Uh, you know, we had the lieutenant network in on the deployment, and we're all hanging out together, and you know, just doing stuff together, and going going to uh, going to bars, going to uh, to meetups, exploring a new city. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant uh, Shea, basically, I remember I I was called. It was early in the morning, and. Uh, was called, uh, I had my XO wake me up and he brought me onto the bridge. I was on a separate ship with, uh, with a Marine Expeditionary Unit, uh, at least it's back in 2002. We were divided up into three ships and we had, uh, the, I think he was on the USS Denver. I was on the USS, uh, was I on the Barnholm Richard or was I, maybe it was the Bella, I was on the Bella Wood and the Bella Wood was a, uh, basically like a small aircraft carrier. Uh, the USS Denver was more like a, uh, it was a free, I, I don't, I don't, anyone listening to the Navy is going to tear me up on this. So I'm going to try to, <laughs> try to say the classification of the ships. Basically, he's on the other ship and, uh, I was the adjutant. I'm the, I was in charge of all correspondence to the outside world in terms of if something bad happened or things like that. So when my XO came and woke me up, I think it was like five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, I knew something was up and they brought me up to the bridge. Uh, the CO was there and, uh, basically, uh, or no, the CO had just arrived. And apparently, uh, they had found, uh, Lieutenant Shea in his, uh, in his, in his stateroom and, uh, he had hung himself. Actually, he was in the, I believe the stateroom of the, of the chaplain. And, uh, the chaplain was just, so he's on the same boat as the chaplain. He had been talking to the chaplain about certain issues and, uh, that he apparently had, uh, asked for, uh, you know, just, you know, it's one of those things that, I don't know the full story on there. Supposedly that he was supposedly given some medication right. to uh, to deal with some you know some some issues, some problems he was having, and uh, he was apparently left. Uh, again, I I don't want to. I can't. Looking back, it's easy to say, oh, well, he shouldn't have been left alone. I mean, this is a guy that, I mean, you he you trusted him with an entire uh, platoon yeah. of men. So why couldn't you trust him with it himself? And we were, you know, we had just left port. Uh, I believe, and uh, and yeah, they they had found him. He'd hung himself. So uh, so it was something. Uh, I I think I think the worst thing about this is if I and I remember when we saw him off. Basically, whenever the helicopter came to pick him up to take him uh, take his body back, that only half of half of the you know, half of the officers and senior listed that should have been there were to see him off. And it was something I remember my CO chewed the ass of, uh, of all the guys that weren't there. And I felt, uh, a, you know, a bit ashamed that I didn't, you know, as, as the, as the adjutant do a better job of kind of kicking, you know, basically maybe I didn't notify them well enough. And right. I remember that was probably the one thing that stuck with me is, uh, 
I mean, besides obviously my friend passing away and, and dying in his own hand, but I remember how quickly it was, it was moved over, uh, in the sense of, Hey, we have, we're heading to, I think at that time we were, I don't know if we were heading back from or we were going over to, um, and again, I'm sorry, my memory's a bit, bit, uh, hazy, but I think at that point, uh, you know, we, we had already been through, uh, quite a bit and it was just, we, we moved on to other things as, as cruel as that sounds. And, uh, and, and the first sergeant took over. Uh, we didn't have a replacement for him until, uh, we ended up getting back and then we did. Uh, we were, you know, we, this was in November of 2002 and, by January, uh, or by December of 2002, we were already back. And then within January of that time period, remember we were back for Christmas, we were already gearing up to go over for operation, or, you know, basically uh, heading to Kuwait. We took a slow boat to Kuwait, and we were in Kuwait by February, and we marched over into Iraq in March. So, I don't know. You know, it was one of those things that, uh, I guess looking back, it all happened so quickly. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest things for the military is that our job is life or death. And when death happens, you know, it's just something that we have to move on quickly. Right. Because there are, this isn't, you know, we can just shut this down and, and talk about this and, and get our feelings out about this. Like we need to get ready for the next pump. Like we're heading, we were literally, we were back for a month in California and then, we're right back out there heading, uh, what we knew to be, you know, an invasion. Did you, did you feel like your unit's response to it, whatever that may have been, both initially and later on was appropriate? I felt it was, I felt it was appropriate at the time. Looking back, it was, you know, it, I feel that there's oftentimes we're, we're putting very young people in turn, in, in a position where, I mean, we've got these guys straight out of med school who are, and, and both of our doctors, uh, we have, we, so you've got a Marine reinforced, uh, infantry battalion, uh, let's say 1300 people, and you've got two doctors that are assigned to us. Like, I don't know if it was, you know, who authorized him to have meds. I don't even know, if, you know, truly if he did have meds, but I do think it's one of those things that we think records are badly kept in the civilian world. I mean, on a military unit, like records are just kind of thrown all over the place. We're supposed to, mm-hmm. but when it comes down to it, you know, is a battalion commander, is he going to be held more responsible for not keeping good medical records or is he going to be held more responsible for not making sure his Humvees and tanks and AAVs aren't operational so he can go do what he needs to do? And I think that's, uh, so oftentimes we're just put in, in a, in a situation in which there will, there will be a failure. And unfortunately, if that failure happens to be with some of the personnel, it's viewed as a, as an acceptable loss. Yeah. So, um, I mean, did you say that he, that he was at the time, like before his death was seeing the, the chaplain? Yes. I, I, I know that he was, that there was some type of, basically it was something like, cause usually an, a young a junior officer doesn't have his own stateroom. You've usually got to be at least an 04 mm-hmm. to have your own stateroom on a, uh, on a ship. So like me, I had three other roommates, which was much better than I'd have to say that a lot of other guys, a lot of, I know, uh, you know, the 
enlisted listening, they're like, man, I had 300 roommates. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it was, uh, so I, I cannot complain, but it was some of those things. I'm wondering, I mean, there are only a few places on a boat that you can be alone. And I believe it is one of those things that he was, you know, perhaps he was just giving, maybe it could have been something he was just say, Hey, I'd like to get on the computer, have a private chat with my wife. Uh, he was married and you know, it, I, I don't remember the full details of that. Okay. Um, looking back now, you know, after it happened, did you, like, I'm, I'm assuming like most people do, did you quickly start looking back into the last, you know, two to four weeks that you would interact with him to see like, oh man, did I not pick up on, on, on anything? Did you, did you experience that? I did. I, I think we looked back and that's why I remember we were just in Singapore because we were trying to pick up on, okay, what happened here? Did we see anything like all the points in which we talked? Where did I talk to him at? What was he saying? What, what was he feeling? Uh, and you know, that, that's about as far as it, uh, that's about as far as it went. And I guess, you know, the one thing I would say is this seems like it would be like just a traumatizing event maybe to to many people and they wonder why the military is so quick to to move on but i mean right before that we had a guy fall overboard and you know we never found him and so but it, you know it, it could be you know it's like how did he really fall overboard did he right. commit suicide jumping off the boat i mean there were just so many big moving parts yeah that a lot of people think that uh during a time of especially you know during the uh, the i think it was just recently that this is the f- last month, uh, I think maybe it was March, that it was the first time there wasn't a fatality in either Iraq or uh, Afghanistan. And what a lot of people don't know is that we never really talk about the uh, peacetime fatalities, the number of, because when you get, a, you know, just thousands and thousands and thousands of young men who are in the situations around, you know, big trucks, fast-moving objects, uh, we just have training accidents all the time. So I think it's it's just something kind of in the back of our mind that we know that death just happens at certain points and we 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 see it and we deal with it and then we 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 move on. Yeah. Um there may not be an answer to this question which is fine, but how do you notice something? How do you feel like, how do you think you would have responded? Um and it's sort of like it's hard to it's hard to picture that scenario and create like what the scenario actually is, but um without him being uh, without him, you know, being forthcoming about what was going on in his life or the help that he that maybe he needed, if you were able to pick up on that, what do you think your approach would have been? Well, well, we're in the Marine Corps, and so there's not a lot of emotion going around. I mean, ba- you know, it, that is looked as something weak, and I would have to, you know, sadly say, I mean, now looking back, I, I wish I, I mean, I'm wondering, like, gosh, you know. Why wasn't I talking? I wasn't even talking with my own guys about issues like this. I was a, you know, in the Marine Corps, you know, there, there isn't, when you want to get someone to do something, it's not a carrot and stick approach. You know, it's, ba- well, it's basically, that's where I want you to go. And I'm going to, and if you don't do it, I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to shove it up your backside. <laughs> I, I mean, there is no, I mean, that's just the way things happen. Right. And if, you know, and it's like, unless you want to get it, you know, you want to be up in front of a court martial. Or something. I mean, most guys are very self-motivating. I just wouldn't have ever guessed that another officer would be hurting and in such a point that he would feel that, you know, this is the only way out. And so, what, and do you think, and what do you think the, do you think that's the same for enlisted? And 
I mean, I'm asking that question being enlisted, but, um, you know, like, do you think that that's, what do you think it was about, um, you know, the officer corps that made, um, made this subject different to deal with? I, I would say, so the enlisted, you know, they, they basically, if, and we've all seen them. I mean, they're, they're basically, you know, people that are having issues being in the military, whether it be, uh, mentally, whether it be physically. Uh, I mean, look at the way we call people that are overweight. We call them fat bodies. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I shouldn't it, laugh, but we shouldn't, yeah. but, but, but that's what we do. You know what? In the last two years, I've got a good friend, Abel James over at Fat Burning Man and, uh, Tom Venuto over at Burn the Fat. And these guys are, I mean, they're just amazing business people. But what they've shown me is, you know, being over, having fat on your body has really not much to do with how much you eat. I mean, how many fat people do you see that they're overeating on broccoli or cauliflower? Right. Or it's simply, it's what you're eating. It's not. And you know what? No one understands that in the military. We simply think that if you eat less cookies or less, you know, go to the chow hall. Half the stuff in there is, I mean, there's some great stuff in the chow hall. Hard-boiled eggs, fruit, vegetables. But there's also, you know, we put out these cakes and all these breads and stuff. I mean, we are literally, we, we, <laughs> we aren't doing people any favors by putting them in a system. If you ever try to eat on a ship and eat healthy, look at an MRE. I mean, <laughs> that, that means, so we create these, we're in a system that has set us up to fail. Yeah. And I, I mean, so to get back to that question about what would I have done if I had seen something, I don't think I could have seen anything. Right. I think I was so blinded by, you know, the mentality of, you know, you just need to be hard and suck it up. And if you're an officer, let's not even, we don't even go there. Literally, you disappear if you're an officer is kind of the mentality. If you're enlisted, you can go through a series of events, which you can get discharged and you can get moved out. But those are always, I remember seeing those guys because I deal with them as the adjutant. And it was like, you know, and a lot of them, I, I mean, to our credit, I look back, I mean, I thought they kind of were nutcases, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it is one of those things that uh, we didn't deal, we basically, we only had so much time. We were already overworked. We're, you know, it's not like we're, oftentimes I think we're just super busy to stay busy, yeah. which you, you remember, it's like, okay, you know, you got to work 14 hours a day. I don't care what you're doing, but you got to work, you know, scrub your rifle, you know, 10 hours a day. Do you, well, yeah. Do you feel like your did this did the event have anything on your mission effectiveness, both you personally and with your with your your unit? You know, I think it affected them. I, I think it did affect the company that that specific company. There's a it was basically I think it did affect the company commander and his perceived ability to uh, as a leader, yeah. uh, which I don't think is a bad thing, but. But it was something I think that, that did pull down that company a bit. I mean, they were able to execute and accomplish mission. So, you know, to that regard, uh, the company commander did, did a good job. But I think it's anytime, you know, you see something like that happen, you're, you're, you're wondering what, what could we have done and, and yeah, how did it affect? For me, overall, the, the way the battalion is split up, I'm sure that there are, uh, you know, it's just, it, I, I'd say it didn't overall affect affect the entire battalion. Do so one thing that um, one thing that I'm noticing in these, you know, so I say that I've done about twelve to fifteen like official interviews, but I've had this conversation with, I mean, almost like a hundred people by now within the past like four or five months because everybody wants to talk to me about this stuff, right? And so I've had a I've had a lot of conversations about 
PTSD, military suicide, issues within the military, issues without outside the military. And one thing that I that it's sort of uh, that comes up often is the military's response to to at least an enlisted member who is reaching out for help, and how their response when their response is almost negative or perceived to be negative, which which then discourages the next person to want to reach out for help. And you know, one thing that I would like to see different inside the military is understanding that like you know you may have a guy a month into a deployment in Afghanistan and he gets hit by an IED survives deals with it all that sort of stuff well it's not like PTSD waits until he gets home to bother him you know he's shook from that experience seconds after it happens but yet he goes six more months in Afghanistan accomplishing the mission and being mission ready but then as soon as he gets back and tells the military, like, I'm sort of, I'm having problems dealing with this and need some help, now it's being adversely, um, you know, responded to. And I think this is a mentality that the, that the, I know the mil, you know, the military has its reasons for, for why they, um, you know, sort of pick and choose, you know, how, the, for why they, how they deal with that. But, you know, what do you think about that idea? Do you think the military unfairly, judges someone who is reaching out for help even though they were 100% mission effective while they during the deployment that they're getting that they're suffering PTSD from I think it's a uh, you know the way I look at it I, and I I think it was all Colin Powell that said you know the military is a hammer but not every problem is a nail and I don't think the military is equipped to be their own doctor for this I, as much i mean are the mission uh, at the end of the, the the day the mission is not i mean we use men and women to accomplish the mission and they die all the time and that's an except i mean that's how we we value we put a value on the life if you you know we've got the you know whenever a military member dies if you sign that you know basic insurance information he's getting what is it i don't know like four hundred thousand dollars at the time it used to be two hundred thousand uh i i I, I just think the system is flawed. I look at the way a hospital is. A hospital will give you, their, or they're supposed to, when you go in, the billing is set up separately from the uh, service because it should they should offer you service regardless of whether or not you can pay. And then the billing, but if they had them together, it would, you know, you would have someone who would perhaps say, okay, well, this person, you know, they're not going to be able to pay. We're just not going to accept them. Yeah. Um, so I almost feel like we almost have, but the problem with those is that you've got to have equal, um, because I do know that there are groups outside, but they're not given the ability to go in, uh, and to the military's defense. I mean, they've got a mission to accomplish. Right. And that mission is not to make us happy. That mission is not to, I mean, that's one of the things I think we get so screwed up with. Our mission is not to be peacekeepers. I never trained to be a peacekeeper. My, I was trained to be a, a dist- I mean, that's Marines really are shock point. troops. We go in and we kick down doors and we kill people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is not, we don't even have, an, you know, our own doctors, our, our own medical stuff. I mean, so it's very, I think it's hard to ask these commanders who are trying to do so many things and they're only human and to put them in a system which they may be a benevolent commander. And I think that's a great thing to be. But if they fail on the, their one mission, which is, whatever that may be to take that hill, that you know, all none of that other stuff mattered. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really great point. 
Um, so I want to make sure we get a chance to touch on, um, you know, the, the second story you had. Um, can you, can you set that one up for us? Yeah, you know, that's more of a personal one. Um, okay. so, you know, it's, it, but it is, you know, I, it, basically my sister in, uh, in 2009, uh, she hung herself as well. And I think that was, that was much closer. I mean, L- Lieutenant Shea was a friend. Uh, my sister was my sister. She's someone I, I, we went to the same, we went to undergrad together. We were roommates. I had rented, I mean, she followed me around, uh, whenever I would, she's only two years younger. So anytime I moved someplace and she needed a free place to stay, hey, you know, my older brother's there. I can go live in Florida for a while, go live in Texas. Uh, but yeah, I was, so she had gotten a great job. And this is another thing, like, with her though, I definitely did see signs, and this is probably the exact opposite. I saw signs all the time, and in fact, we had tr- worked to get her help. Uh, I remember being on the phone with her multiple times when she was looking to kill herself. But really, when it came down to it, at a point, sometimes you think you get past that, and that a person's in a great spot, and it only takes them getting into that dark hole and to, to have hours by themselves or even minutes. For them to make, I think that's one of the hardest things about it is you feel you can do everything right. My sister and I, I mean, we were always there. We always thought we were there for her. I mean, literally, like I would have her come live with me. The apartment she hung herself in, I chose that apartment for her and I lived with her in that apartment. So, I mean, she had a great job. She was an attorney for the state of Texas and she was doing great things going after people that would, uh, that would do, uh, basically, uh, insurance fraud. She loved, she had a great group of people she was working with. She had a boyfriend. I mean, so she had all these things that if you do the chat, the list, she shouldn't, she had an advanced, she had a law degree. Right. Uh, I mean, she, she was beautiful. I mean, she was, you know, she had no problem. She was a very beautiful young woman. Uh, you know, as far as I know, there were no medical issues. Uh, but yet, so if you check all the boxes, this shouldn't have happened. But yet, you know, we, and we, maybe, I don't know. You know, it's, it's one of those things. I, I find that suicide is something, I sometimes feel that we're pretty arrogant to think that we can prevent all of these things just by throwing time and money at it. Right. When in some cases, almost we have to let some of it go because it's beyond what we, it, it's beyond our control. That's a, you know, that, that's a really great point. And I think, um, it's one of my criticisms right now with, you know, veteran suicide is such a hot topic right now. Um, and it's, it, I almost feel bad that it's like overshadowing every other suicide that happens in America. Um, as far as people addressing the issue. And one of my criticisms on it is like, you know, like the, I, what was it? IAVA, that organization just did like a storming the hill thing. Um, where the, you know, a bunch of people went to, went to Capitol Hill and to, to sort of lobby and advocate for, for veteran suicide and to, and to solve the problems. And they planted a bunch of flags into, um, into the National Mall to represent veteran suicide. And I'm like, is this is all just, one, this is sort of all just noise. Um, and, and two, like, what do you, I mean, what do you want? You want, you want a portion of the budget to go to preventing veteran suicide? Like, what is that going to do? And, and I think that, I think we're starting to, forget that these are, you know, again, th- those are human emotions that we're dealing with. You know, you just can't buy someone happiness. You can't buy a fix to their problems. And I, I think that we we lose that sometimes with this overall agenda to, to, to fix the problem. And, you know, you mentioned that you, you know, you had been on the phone with her in some of those, in some of those uh, occasions. 
you know, what, you know, what was ultimately, what was she struggling with? Were you ever able to make sense of it yourself or were you having a hard, or was she having a hard time making sense of it and couldn't communicate it? No, she, you know, she was pretty good about, uh, I think telling us, I think it came down to, we, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you look at the same thing and one person can see one thing and another person sees another. And where I would see it was just a challenge, she would see as life was being unfair. So it was always something I think though that we just, a very small thing, but we took, we would get, dealt many of the same things in life. And that was to my, you know, unfortunately I, you know, and I still feel bad about this is I, I took a very harsh approach sometimes. Maybe, you know, it was, I f- sim- felt simply, and this is maybe the Marine, you know, it was like, you got to suck it up. Uh, you know, you're, you're upset when you've got all these other great things going for you. How can you, you know, feel this problem or how can you, you know, be in this? Uh, and I don't, I don't think military suicide, you know, getting back to your early thing is going to be solved by just throwing more money at it. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's like fundamental shifts in, in, in the way that, that we think and what we put value on and, and, and what we focus on as a society. I, you know, it's, I, there probably haven't been that many studies done on this, but you know, I, I would, you look at where societies where suicide's very low, it's usually ones in which, uh, that people, they just have other things to worry about or they've got other things to focus on. Uh, you don't see, I, I, at least as far as I know, in, in a part, in many parts of, of Africa, you don't see suicide or parts of, you know, uh, let's say Vietnam or, I mean, where people are, they're focused on making it day to day and they don't have time to realize how, how, how bad. I mean, I think some of the, I, I enjoyed a trip to India when I was in business school. I we spent about a month over there. And I just loved it because you'd meet all these amazing Indians who were just so happy with the way things, like with life and life in general. And it, and these are people that, you know, are making, you know, I don't know, a, a couple hundred dollars a month. And, and they're just so happy with it. And you look at measures of happiness throughout the world. I've got a friend at the University of Texas. He's really smart about this, but he was explaining to me that happiness is about oftentimes relativity. And so one of the most unhappy countries in the world is Moldova, which is really actually much wealthier than many other countries out there. But the reason Moldova is so unhappy or more is because of their relation to everything else. They can see right across, you know, the way that Italy's doing so great, uh-huh. but Moldovans are not. Yeah. And so because of that, and I think that's, you know, we're constantly in this position of, well, gosh, I just don't have as, I'm not as successful. I don't have as much as that person or they make life seem seamlessly easy or, yeah, you know, I, I don't know why, you know, my sister killed herself. I don't know why Lieutenant Shea, you know, Chris killed himself, but I do feel that whatever it was, it was, it had to have been, it was, I was something relatively small that I think many people deal with. And I know that sounds bad. But I don't mean it that way. I mean it relatively. I mean, if we really were to pull it out, what that trigger point was, whatever it was, was probably something that if they were, you know, if, if you would talk to them in a reason, happy reason state, that they would be, oh, that, like, I wouldn't do that. Sure. And, uh, and I think actually with both of them, like, again, I, I can't, I don't know if Shay was on any medication, uh, but I know my sister had, uh, 
she was, I think she was drinking at the time and, and was, and, and maybe had some other, uh, something else that maybe she was, uh, she was on at the time. And I think that, so when you're not in your right mind, I think that's also uh, a big, a big player in uh, making that decision. Right. Do you, um, you know, so, so one of the, uh, do you feel, um, that maybe part of, like you said, you like, you looked at something that as a, a challenge and, but she looked at it as, life not being unfair do you think that there was a disconnect of that empathy that, that you were trying to provide i do i i, I felt that um, probably my sister was a better person for her to speak with and talk with about these about these issues but you know and my sister always made time for her but she's also got three boys and yeah. she lives in another state she lives in california my sister at the time lived in texas uh and when it comes down to it you know we're all living our our own lives mm-hmm. and Again, these, uh, these take, you know, a pretty short time. You know, there was one thing that you did talk about, which I kind of like to go back at. And sure. you talked about, you know, addressing this as a big problem. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't need more attention brought to it and possibly more resources thrown at it, but I think it needs to be done in a way that we're able to. I, I think one of the hardest things is we will never vet su- suicide prevention and it, it, it's, you can, how do you measure that? How do you know how many people didn't commit suicide because of a program or because of the efforts that you've gone through? And, and I think that's one of the harder things to do. There was a, uh, there's a great book out there called the checklist manifesto. And it talks about in the medical field, how there was a commitment to save a hundred thousand lives over a 10 year period by getting maybe, maybe it was a one year period. I, I don't mean it was a very short amount of time. But these hundred lives that they, hundred thousand lives that they saved, you would never know that you saved them because simply what they did is they went through hospitals and with doctors and nurses and they created, uh, better systems so that they did what was, they, they didn't make those small errors which would lead to complications and then death of patients needlessly. Yeah. So I'm, you know, that's I think the hard thing with this is that because it's not cheap to give treatment to somebody, especially if this goes on for years. And so, you know, it, we've got a, we've got a finite number of resources, especially a finite amount of time. And how do you most effectively deploy these resources? Uh, you know, it's something probably people with 20 pound brains and smarter than me need to, uh, <laughs> to help figure out. But. Well, uh, let me, let me tell you, Antonio, I have been talking to, um, like I said, a couple medical professionals and a couple um, other sort of program developers, and there are people with twenty-pound brains who are coming up with, uh, you know, study-proven um, treatment uh, that is becoming effective on derailing suicidal behavior. And it's, um, it's, I think it's, uh, it's inspiring. Uh, I think one, the the con to that is these studies can't be released as official. Uh, you know, they can't announce it officially like this is going to work until they've done a few like more treatments and more studies and you have a peer reviewed and all sort of stuff. And that takes time. Right. So um, what's happening on the medical level is sort of is slowing down um, this process because of, you know, sort of the legal hoops that they all need to go through. It is important for us to try to big picture this and try to find a way, you know, to to um, quick, you know, to be effective all the way around but i think it's even more important and this is part of what the one too many project is trying to promote is i think it's important to try to figure out what we can do down here 
um, at our level and practical ways of intervening on suicidal behavior through empathy, through um, helping uh, people discover passions that may distract them, um, being able to you know, uh, introduce or trying to get them to connect with someone that they look up to. I think this is another thing that we don't do enough is, um, you know, I, I had one lady tell me that you know, this 19 year old, uh, Marine was having troubles and he was suicidal and stuff. And my first thought, my first, I was like, find out some, find out who in his unit or who in his community he looks up to and have that person talk to him first. Um, and I think there's, I think these, there's a few simple, not, not, it's, it's easy to call them simple, but I think there's a few things that we're all capable of that we're able to do, but no one really realizes it because it's not really a part of this bigger conversation that we're trying to have. Yeah. No, I mean, this, it definitely sounds, uh, like I agree. You know, it's, uh, and I feel that there are, uh, I, I'd like to, I feel that, uh, you know, as a society, I, I don't know how much more room there is for, you know, there's so many things trying to get on our plate and yep. we're always, uh, being, having things thrown at us. Yep. But I have to wonder, you know, what are we, it, is there a way to, to get this, to talk about this and to change the system so that it, it's just, we, we maybe prevent thousands and thousands of suicides, but we never really, like, we just get the percentage to go down. And I, again, it sounds like, you know, some people that are a lot smarter than me are trying to figure out ways to do this. If you were to see some, if you were to, and, you know, so you had the one experience, um, you know, with, with Chris that, um, you know, you weren't able to, to intervene and be involved and you had the experience with your sister where you were actively trying to, um, trying to help her taking both of those experiences into consideration. If someone that you were less familiar with, um, was, um, you know, someone that was just sort of in your realm, but you were, you know, less, uh, less familiar with was starting to show signs or came forward to you. Now that you've had these two experiences, you know, what, what would sort of come to your mind on what your first couple steps should be? Uh, well, I think the first is to, uh, to be open. I mean, to, to start the conversation, to engage, probably not try to, do the, uh, the one at the one talk that's two hours long and then you go two weeks without talking with them again. Yeah. But try to just do the, uh, hey, you know, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. But also, I, I think for me, long term, I'm just trying to think, how can we do something that is sustainable and that really gets to the root cause? I mean, if it's because of a relationship, if it's because of the way that they view themselves, uh, if it's because of a, of a job environment, of, of, of maybe even a physical environment, um, you know, tr but try to figure out what is, what it, what is causing this. I mean, that's a, that, that's what, that's what I would, I would think. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely much more open about it. I, and I don't, you know, my kids, they're getting to a point where they, they ask about, you know, my, my sister and, and, and stuff. And we talk, I try to be open about it and to talk to them about it. My wife comes from a culture in Ukraine and uh, I know throughout Russia and Belarus and other parts of Bulgaria and East Europe, many of those places, this is looked at like you don't talk about if someone kills themselves. It's a big shame on the family. Yeah. And so we try to, uh, you know, with my kids, it's not something I try to hide that she just like, died and I don't go into detail. I explain, you know, why I think and, you know, how I really do miss her. Uh yeah, you know, I, I don't know what more I can add to that. Yeah, no, I, that's, that, that's fine. 
Um, you know, I'm hoping that anyone that listens to this, uh, that anyone that wants to learn more, that they're doing what they can and, uh, and that they're taking action, especially if they're in a position where they can, where they can help and they can, they can, they can reach others. Absolutely. Absolutely. After listening to the conversation with Antonio again, I can't help but think about how important it is to recognize your own efforts in aiding someone in their emotional and mental struggle and then being able to forgive yourself if the situation turns fatal. Antonio lost his sister after a number of attempts to provide empathy and comfort and providing her with this assurance that she isn't alone and that she has family who loves her, but yet she was still she was already there. She was in a, a dark space that um, she that they weren't able to recover her from, and it's important to know that. It's really easy to feel guilty. It's really easy to to blame yourself because we feel like um, we feel like happiness and at least um, contentness is something that we should be able to provide people. We feel like this is something that we can talk people into if you know if you know we believe that just you know the right situation, the right conversation is is going to be enough, and that if. If it didn't work, you know, that, that maybe that's on us for not doing enough when, you know, it's, well, as we mentioned in the conversation, you know, we just, we just can't save everybody. And the goal here is to have a solution. The goal here is to have a, um, you know, a plan uh, for how you're going to talk to somebody, how you're going to intervene on the, in their lives when this looks to be a problem, how we can uh, involve ourselves in people's lives before this becomes a problem. But please, please, please remember that some people are just there and unfortunately that's the case and you need to be able to forgive yourself and sort of like how the army veteran from a few episodes ago, you know, he lost his friend and had he had some guilt behind that, but he took what he learned from that situation and he immediately applied it to a new situation with a new soldier, and he was able to uh, to be to be of service there. He was able to help this soldier uh, get back on his feet, and I think that's what's important. And it's easy because this this situation um, can end in death, and um, we feel so responsible for each other and each other's lives that it's you know we feel guilty and we feel like you know that was our mistake it's still a mistake that we it's still a situation that we need to learn from and start applying it to the other other situations around us and you know hope that maybe it doesn't have to happen again and i think it's just really important to keep that in mind uh, when you're faced with these situations the resource for today and i didn't the resource for today is uh, I want everybody to use their intuition as as a resource, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we're we're in we we're well into this project now. We've heard plenty of stories of people saying, "Well, I I felt like something just wasn't right," or um, to be honest, your intuition is probably what you need to trust. I say that in if something doesn't seem right and then you sort of let your, then you try to dismiss it because uh, we were laughing at the end or he said he was okay. 
If something doesn't seem right, you need to trust that. You need to trust your intuition. Let you know, use that resource uh, as as guidance. The lessons that we've learned here with empathy, purpose, mentorship, etc., to make sure that you're still active in that individual's life. And I think that um, you know, if you if you listen to other places in life, uh, whether it be uh, you know business or or relationships or family, friends, whatever it may be, people always tell you in the end, trust your gut. And I think that. Through all of this, with these conversations, with these, uh, with the the stigmas, and trying to get everybody to, to, to come forward and talking, and you know you're gonna be, you're gonna experience a whole lot. Of, you're gonna experience a huge wave of emotion, and it's gonna be a, a tough situation. In the end, and going through it all, you really need to trust your intuition and your gut telling you what the next action is, or you know what the real situation is. Be- trust your intuition when interacting with people and follow the lessons that uh, that we're really pushing forward here. If you'd like to learn more about the project, if you'd like to get involved, if you would like to set up an event so we can talk to your community about these uh, about this epidemic and the ideas we have to uh, to try to, as Antonio mentioned, just lower the percentage and feel like we're making progress, go to O-N-E, the number two, manyproject.com that's one too many project.com there's a contact page all the episodes are there there's information on our sponsors thanks again to frank and one bold move for supporting this specific episode really appreciate it and all the support you've given me sir it's uh it's really been encouraging one too many project.com slash itunes where you can go you can subscribe to this podcast and get these episodes downloaded to your library as soon as they come out Thank you for listening. I will see you next week.